Well, pleasant good evening to all of you. Counted a privilege to be here. I uh, been to Bethany a number of times, and it's almost like coming home. <laughs> but you've warm, won a warm spot in my heart, and over the years, and so I'm glad to be here and greet you in the precious name of Jesus. Appreciate the hymns that we sang, and our brother laid a good foundation for the assignment that I have of being passionate. I know that sometimes we hear that it's going to be a sermon on missions that we kind of get ready to be taken to the proverbial woodshed and get a whipping because we haven't done very good. And so we put up our dukes and have our excuses ready and uh, maybe can't receive what what we ought to. I suppose you've all heard the story about the four high school boys who drove to school and decided that one morning there was something more interesting going to school. And so they did some other things. And knowing they'd have to give account, they had an agreement among themselves that when the teacher asked them what the reason was they're late, they said that they would tell the teacher they had a flat tire. And so that's what they did. They got there late, and the teacher said, well, why are you late? I said, well, we had a flat tire. She said, well, that's understandable. I can understand that. Take your seats. Uh, you did miss a little quiz while you were gone. Get a pencil and paper. And just one question on the quiz, and that is, which tire was flat? And so sometimes our excuses doesn't quite uh, add up. And so, but I, I'm not here to chastise you. I, the Lord chastised me enough, maybe not enough, but in preparing this about my own life. And this thing of being passionate, I want this to be a message for uh, personal. I had to preach it to myself first, but being a, having a personal passion. And I'm not really here to put anybody on a guilt trip. Uh, I'll let the Lord do that. That's his business. Uh, and I trust that we can, my goal would be to encourage. My goal would be to, to motivate the, and trust that the Spirit of God will anoint this service uh, in this time together for his glory and his purposes. Being passionate. I think being passionate begins with a personal relationship with God. Being passionate in our relationship with God. Passion begins with a, a love for God, a, an all-encompassing love. God encouraged that from the beginning. Jesus reaffirmed it in the book of Deuteronomy. God said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Strength, it's all, it's, it's all encompassing. Now, when we love God with all of our heart, then we, we love what God loves. And we hate what God hates. God's priorities become our priorities. God's interest becomes our interest. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's a sinner. God loves the world. He wants us to love sinners. And so we want to think about maybe a little bit, well, what, what, does, what are we talking about being passionate? I've noticed a few things about passionate people, and that, that passionate people are, are people that, that get things done. Uh, I call them... Uh, Get her done, people. You know, there's the task. Let's get her done. Say, 
And sometimes those kind of people have a problem with committees because it takes committees too long to get something done. They want to get it done and not talk about how to do it for half a day. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're passionate people. They, uh, you know, they like to sleep, but they don't want to sleep half their life away. You know, if I would have slept eight hours every night, I'd have spent over 25 years in bed already. I, I got too much to do to spend that much time in bed. But passionate people are get-or-done people. They're energized. Second thing I noticed about passionate people, that passionate people have, have visions and goals. They, they have a, a vision. They have a goal. They have object. They have something in mind that they, they're trying to accomplish and want to accomplish. And so they're not only energized, but they're motivated. Passionate people also have a, a clear understanding of their purpose in life. What they're here for. Why are we here? You've heard people say that the Bible is the only book that tells us where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going. But a lot of people just not sure why they're here except to take up space and breathe air. There's somebody else's to breathe six times. Say they, they want, they're, they're, they're not here. They don't have a vision. Don't have a goal. Just, just existing, taking up space. Passionate people know they're not here to take up space. They have a purpose. They have a passion. They know why they're here. And they devote themselves to their passion. Life is full of things that are important and things that aren't important. And so they devote their lives to the things that are important. Things, everything else seems worthless. And so they gravitate towards their passion and away from everything else that life has to offer. The last thing I noticed about passionate people is they can't help but talk about their passion. No matter what that passion is, I mean... Uh, it isn't only old people that repeat themselves. It's people that have passion. I mean, you've heard the story before, you know. I mean, I, I have friends that are passionate about different things. I have a, a, a friend that's just passionate about al alternative health things and vitamins and minerals, and, and that's all right, but I've heard the story so often, I think I could give a talk somewhere. Uh, and, and so they, they, they talk about whatever their, their passion is, whether it's we're hunting or whatever. We're talking about missions, though. That's their passion. Now, the opposite of passion, of course, would be maybe apathy, laid-back attitude, so what, no concern, no enthusiasm. And God wants us to be passionate about serving him. Now, I'd like to, a few Bible verses that I'd like to use as introductory, and then I'd like to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 1 and 2, and look at this church at Thessalonica, which I really was a group of people, a church that was passionate about serving the Lord, and draw some things from that that might help us to be, to be passionate. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, familiar passage, <clears throat> words of Jesus himself. Very profound statement. Two things Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, I think it's verse 18, Matthew 16, I think it's 18. Yes, Jesus said, I will build my church. I 
will build my church. And then he said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when Jesus says something, that's, that is going to happen. Regardless of all the odds, he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This, this statement talks about building and it talks about battle. Jesus said, I am calling for builders and I am calling for soldiers. And this passage tonight is about building. It's about builders. It's about building. Now, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, that's a word we use oftentimes, the word church. And you've heard it means the ecclesia. But we think about church, I hear expressions about church, and I'm not sure what, I understand there's two churches represented here, but sometimes I hear churches referred to as the home church. And then we have another church, and they say, well, this is an outreach church. And then I hear another expression that this is a mission church. Now, I think the New Testament teach us that uh, every church should be a mission church. And if it's not a mission church, I ask you, does it really have a right to exist? Jesus gave the mission. He said, I will build my church. And so, I'm going to say it at the beginning, I'm going to say it at the end. When I say it the second time, you know I'm getting close to the end, okay? And that is every church, every church, a mission church, every family, a mission family, and every member, a mission area. I don't know how many families are at this church or at Raleigh. I don't know how many families. You can count the families. Sometimes we talk about a mission church or a mission field, and we say there's two families there, three families there. But think about how many families you have. That's how many mission families. Everybody, every family, a mission family. And I'm not here, as I said, I'm not here to put people on a guilt trip. And my heart goes out sometimes when I hear sermons like this, that I see a young mother sitting here with three or four children by her side, and she's feeling awful guilty that she's not going to Africa or to Bangladesh somewhere. I want to say, that is your mission field. See, your mission field. Jesus said, go into all the world. And I'm going to maybe put a little con different construction on that. And that is, the world is your world. The world is the people. I'd like you to think about the people maybe that each of you are going to meet in the next week. That is your world. I find that mission is not so much knocking on people's doors, but opening the door to the people that, that God brings into our lives every day. And so think of that. This is not just something for the preachers. This is not something for the people in the foreign field. My focus tonight is going to be on the congregation, the local congregation. I'd like to look at three areas. And first of all, we're going to look at having a passion for the mission. And then we're going to talk about the people involved in the mission being passionate. And then we want to talk about the people that are in focus of our passion. Think about the mission. What is the mission? Open your Bibles now to Matthew 28. 
This is called the Great Commission. You're acquainted with it, but I'd just like to notice some of the wording here. Matthew 28, 19, some of the last words of Jesus. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. There's just two things that I want to draw your attention to that I noticed, and that is each verse has the word teach or teaching in it. Verse 19 says, teach all nations. I discovered in my preparation that these two words, the word teach in verse 19, the word teaching in verse 20, are two different root words. And the word in 19 where it says go teach actually literally means go and make disciples. And so that's my emphasis tonight is that the mission, what is the mission? The mission is to make disciples. The second word in verse 20 is how you do it. See, You go and you make disciples and the way you make disciples is to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's how you do it. And so that's, that's, that's the mission. You notice Mark 16 and 15, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, all the, all the world. He that is believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. But have you noticed that in each of these verses that baptism is mentioned? Part of making disciples. Part of making disciples is the, the matter of baptism. In Acts 2, 47, day of Pentecost, when the gospel was being preached, and come to the last part of that chapter, and it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I don't see evangelism as a separate issue from making disciples. A lot of people, in a lot of our circles even, but evangelical Christianity has separated evangelism from discipleship. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that teaches that. Being passionate about the mission is the being passionate about making disciples. So how do we make disciples? If the mission is making disciples, and that's a mandate. It's not an option. It's a mandate from Jesus. It's a spiritual mandate. I'd like to suggest a few things that that first of all, that we need clarity on. We need clarity on a clear understanding of the mission. And part of that clarity involves an understanding of the relationship of, of what we're talking about. We, talk, we use words like salvation. We have an understanding of that. There's a lot of teaching today that salvation uh, is separate from discipleship. Um, they call it lordship salvation. Some people believe you can be saved. And whether you make Jesus the Lord of your life, that's an option that sometime later in life. We don't find that that's what. And, and so because of that, you see, because of that, a very different view of salvation. Well, I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to hope that Holy Spirit can motivate us to make disciples 
because of the culture of evangelical Christianity in Western culture in America today, don't ever expect that this is going to be a megachurch with 10 or 15,000 people. If those churches would really preach what the Bible talks about making disciples, they'd empty their pews real quick. And we want to be, we want to have Paul warned in this matter of making disciples. He talked about the foundation that Christ made. He is the foundation. And every man take heed how you build. And he warned about building with wood, hay, and stubble, something that's not going to last. And so we're interested in something that is going to last. And so while we think about salvation, you know, when, when, when is salvation a done deal? In heaven. We have a prison ministry in Gettysburg, and the Baptist man is the chaplain, and those who go there kind of have to work on under him. And he said some time ago, I've been here 18 years, and I've got 8,000 people saved. Really? See, it's what I call buttonhole evangelism. You realize you're a sinner? You want to go to heaven and you die? Well, yeah, I would. Well, uh, you realize you're a sinner and you pray this prayer. Pray this prayer after me and, and now you're saved. And then he goes to the next cell. He did that 8,000 times. And I don't know those lives, but many of those go out and live the same life they did before. See, I often wonder what happens to people like that. You talk to them and say, well, I tried this once before and it didn't work. <laughs> didn't he really try? See, But that's, that's the culture uh, of the Christianity we face today. And so it makes mission work difficult with that kind of messages. So we want to do something that's enduring. That controversy, which is even in evangelical circles, you notice that it says that in Acts, I mentioned that, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved so making disciples includes obedience to the scriptures holiness of life jesus warned about the pharisees he said woe to you scribes pharisees and hypocrites you come past the sea and land to make one proselyte and when he is made you make him twofold more the child of the devil than yourselves and i'm not sure if i understand all that but a person that has been given a false hope is in worse shape than a person who never had the hope to begin with. All right, now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. That was the introductory passages. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, chapter 2. This is an amazing church. I, uh, I know that we don't, uh, uh, some preachers choose their churches, so we don't do that. Um, God chooses them. But if you'd ever want to choose a church, this would be a nice church to choose to be a pastor of. Just notice how this church was passionate about, about missions and about outreach. I'm going to begin in 1 Thessalonians 4, I mean 1, verse 4. I'll probably read to verse 10, and then we'll go to the second chapter and read a few verses. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, our gospel came not unto you in word only but in power, in Holy Ghost,
in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received of the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And you were in samples to all that believed in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. Sounds like they were putting the preachers out of business. For they themselves show unto us what manner of entering we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Verse 4, chapter 2. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth the hearts. For neither at any time used to be flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetous, God is witness, nor of men sought to be glory, neither of you, nor yet of others. When we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, as a nurse cherished her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. You remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holyly and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called us unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. number of things I'd like to notice about this passion for the mission, that the mission, the passion for mission, uh, or the mission, involves change. You notice in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says that they show themselves what manner of entering we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. Now the mission involves change in the lives of the people that we're interested in. And that change begins with what the Bible calls being born again. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what does that mean? Well, it is a change. <laughs> you were born once, you need to be born again. It's a change in, change in essence. It's a change of, of what you are. It's a change of being. The inside is changed. The Bible talks about the old man, the new man, a different person. It's a, it's a change from a sinner to a saint. I don't know if I gave this illustration here, but I just think of... Um, Well, just let me say this. So some of you know me quite well. Some don't so good. But 
Uh, I have to look through, in this message, I have to look through my life, the grid that I look through. We don't come from a big Mennonite community like some of you are from. Um, <clears throat> oh, by the way, I'm the product of a mission field. Uh, my father and mother saw me as a mission, and I'm a product of a mission field. But uh, I never went to a Christian school. I was trained a humanist. I was trained secular education. And so my, my journey would be quite different than maybe a lot of you. And uh, we've had the privilege to minister to a lot of people in our community um, and see the change that God can bring in a person's life. And I'm not, I may share a few, but I, I could maybe take an hour and tell you the stories and the joy it brought to my heart and to God's heart. You know, God just loves to see the gospel preached and responded to. You know, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. And I just want to encourage you tonight. You know, did you ever see the gospel fail? Did you ever see one time that it didn't work? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it works every time to everyone that believes. When I think about change, I think about a drastic change. And a young girl came into our community. She, she grew up in a home that was probably different than any of you. Could be somebody here like that. Maybe you can identify with this girl. She never went to church in her life. Anybody here never, never went to church? This is your first time in church. First time. First time. First time. Anybody? Nobody? Oh, you've been here. You've been four. All right. See, you can't identify with this girl then altogether. She never read the Bible. Her parents didn't believe in God. Her father was an agnostic and her mother was an atheist or the other way around, one way or the other. They didn't have any time for God. Never went to Sunday school. Never went to Bible school. Never had a Bible in the home. It's hard to identify with that. I want you to try to look through somebody's life like that, see? She lived a life of sin. Came off the streets, city of Cleveland, Ohio. Her mother bought a house next to us and moved in. She moved in with her mother. She wasn't there very long, and we made some acquaintance. She was about the age of some of our children in her mid-20s. We had children at home at that time. Some of them didn't marry until they were her late 20s. And uh, began to make friends. And we talked about God. And said, God, what's that? See. And I'm not sure how the conversation went, but I remember it was a Christmas Eve. A Christmas Eve around the, the table and discussing things like this. And finally got to the place about the gospel and about her life. To make a longer story short, she gave her heart to the Lord on a Christmas Eve around our supper table. See. Now, this girl, I told you a little bit about her background. She uh, drove a bright orange sports car. I don't mean one of these make-believe things. I mean the real McCoy. I think it was the Jaguar or BMW, something. I mean, it was, you know. And uh, about a week after she got converted, she uh, stopped in. And said, you know, I, I can't figure out what's happening to me. She says, before I came over here, I, I lived on rock music. 
And, and we'd hear that when she'd go down the road, you know, with the windows down and the sun roof open, and she'd stick her hand out and wave, and you'd hear the boom, 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 boom. You know, we, we knew there was that kind of music. She said, that's what I lived on. And she said, I'm getting so I can't stand it. Now, can you imagine in one week's time that when rock music is your life, that now you can't stand it? And I said, Carolyn, that's what happens when you get converted, see? It belongs to change. And she'd stop in pretty often. I, I need to talk. I need to talk. And about four months later, she stopped by again and said, said Rich, I need to talk to you. And she said, you know, there's something that bothers me. She said, I think I ought to get rid of my car. I said, why did you get rid of your car? She said, I know why I bought that car. I am not that kind of person anymore. See, it's a change of essence. Being born again is the transformation made different. Desires change. Attitudes change. And one of the reasons I believe that sometimes we have people that struggle and struggle and struggle and promise and promise and promise because we haven't had the change. You know, I believe, I believe that the church is important. And I believe that making disciples is a part of the church. And I don't believe in mission work that's really apart from the church. I think it's all a part of making disciples. But there's a danger. We don't believe in salvation by church membership. But there's a danger that we've met the church without meeting the Lord. It's a possibility that can happen. It belongs change. They turned, turned to God from idols. It's a change in conduct. From impurity to purity, from sinning to holy living, a change in values. We meant a turn to God from idols. Kingdom values are are there instead of earthly values, sensual values, a change in allegiance. You notice in verse 6 of chapter 1, where the mission is articulated, they became followers of Jesus. It's a change of masters. Turn to Luke chapter 9. The mission, I'm talking about the mission. If we're going to be passionate about the mission, we we need to know what the mission is. And I'm trying to underscore that the mission is to make disciples. If we're going to make disciples, we need to understand what that looks like. I believe God accepts every heart that's sincere. But I'm trying to impress upon us it's more, while that could be involved, but it's more than just praying the sinner's prayer and putting up your hand at a revival meeting and going through instruction class. It involves a change of masters. Luke 9, 23. Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Jesus again. Now there are... <clears throat> Luke chapter 14. Jesus gives similar teaching, but he elaborates on it a little bit. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 14, Jesus is on a mission here. Now, I want you to notice the mission. See, the mission that Jesus was on is the same mission he gives us. He didn't have one mission, and we have another mission. The mission's all the same. See, we're just an extension of Jesus' mission. And he was on a mission. And, and multitudes were following him. Uh, it says here, verse 25, great multitudes. I don't, how, how many does it take to make a great multitude? How many people do you think Jesus preached to at times? Well, he preached to 5,000. We know that. Is that a great multitude? And one of the gospels says, plus women and children. 
And so there could have been, what, 15,000? That'd be a mega church, wouldn't it? 15,000. They were following him. And he noticed what he says. He, he seems to me that he, he said here he turned. And maybe he stopped and got up on a rock or on a stump. And maybe he waved his hands and said, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. And give me your attention. And here's what he said. If any man will come after me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, that would thin out real quick, wouldn't it? And then he said, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And you go over to Verse 33, likewise, whosoever he be that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. That's a tough mission, isn't it? Now, I don't know if we understand what cannot means. See, cannot, how would you define cannot? We <laughs> cannot. See? Now, Glenn Hurst helped me understand what cannot is. I heard him say one time, what cannot means. I've never forgotten it. He said, an elephant cannot fly. Yeah. No matter how big his ears are or how hard he flops them, he cannot fly. And Jesus said, if you don't forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Tough mission. See, that's why they call it mission work. <laughs> Because it's hard. It's hard. And there's few that follow. Jesus said, few there be that find it. Now few is in contrast to many. But we're glad for the few. Now he said you need to deny yourself. Now in our work, I think we need, we're talking about the change. That we need to understand the difference between self-denial and denial of self. See, Jesus said you need to deny yourself. And we confuse self-denial with denial of self. Jesus did not teach self-denial. He taught denial of self. If you teach self-denial without denial of yourself... You end up with a religious system called asceticism. And asceticism is that if I deny myself of certain things, then I'm going to have a higher standard with God. I remember talking to a lady one time that belonged to a church and they were practicing Lent. You know what Lent is? You practice Lent? We practice Lent all year long. <laughs> but so many days before Easter or Good Friday, I think it's 40 days, some churches practice Lent. And this lady was telling me what a sacrifice she was making during Lent, that for 40 days she was not going to eat one piece of chocolate candy. What a sacrifice during Lent. And I said to her, Lady... How can you call it sacrifice whenever you're the only one that benefits from it? See? And sometimes our self-denial that we teach is, is that I 
you know, I, I need to deny myself of this. And I, you know, how many, how many of you ladies have automatic washers? Okay, oh, quite a few. Anybody have ringer washer yet? Bless you, good for you. You think you're more holy than the rest? You don't. <laughs> See, there are people. You might say, well, you know, maybe the Lord would be happier with me if I deny myself of this automatic washer and get a ringer washer. And so you do that. And then after a while, you're thinking, you know, maybe the Lord would be happier with me. I was in a home somewhere this week where I saw a scrub board. I don't know where it was. I saw a scrub board. It reminded me. You know, maybe the Lord would be happy with you if you just get rid of that automatic washer. I mean, that ringer washer. Put it out for yard sale and just use a scrub board. And after it's out there four days, nobody takes it, so then you put it to the junk. And then you're here scrubbing. You say, oh, God's happy with me. I'm denying myself. See. And then after a while, you say, I wonder if God would be happy with me if I just get two rocks. And rub my clothes as you're washing your clothes and rubbing between the rocks. And you're smiling and you think God's smiling because you're denying yourself. And then after a while you think, hmm, I wonder if God would be happy with me if I just wouldn't wash my clothes that all. You see, what I'm saying is you can do all of that and self can still be on the throne. And that system is called asceticism, but denying yourself of certain things that may be good and right and doesn't really make any difference, see. Now, let me tell you this, lest I be misunderstood and get tarred and feathered before I get out of here, that if you take self to the cross, you're going to deny yourself of a lot of things, and I'm going to talk about some of them because those things are getting in the weight of our passion for the lost. And we'll talk about that. talking about the mission. I, I want to make sure we understand the mission. Because if the mission don't avoid, avoid change, it's a useless mission. Say, we're going for a change. Paul was changed. A lot of examples in scriptures. Paul was changed from a persecutor to a preacher. The woman at the well was changed from adultery to purity. The demon-possessed man. Mark 5, from crazy to being sane, from naked to being clothed. The demon-possessed girl affected the economy. The economy changed. Zacchaeus was changed from a thief to a benevolent person, from a taker to a giver. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul talks about the change that takes place. He mentions about the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom. He talks about who they include. He talked about fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, shall not inherit the kingdom. But then he said, but such were some of you. You're changed. You're sanctified. You're washed. You're justified in the name of the Lord by the Spirit of God. Change. The mission involves change. Well, I need to go on. I want to talk about the as people that we become passionate. We be passionate the believer. Focus on the person doing the sharing. Now, mission work is not as difficult as we make it sometimes. You know, you don't need to be a theologian to be a missionary. Well, there's a few things you have to know. D.L. Moody said one time, before you can get a man saved, you have to get him lost. There's a few things you have to know. 
you know, to, to be a Christian, there's a few things you have to know. You have to know you're lost. You have to know about the Savior. You need to know something about faith and what it means to believe. Something about repentance and why it's important. You know something about sin and why God hates sin and what he's going to do about it. A few things we need to know. Someone has said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get some bread. You know, if you've experienced, if you've got something, you can tell somebody about it, see? Instead, if you're passionate about it, see? I, um, I'm a child of the Depression, and in those days, why, everybody was poor. We were all poor. We didn't know we were poor because everybody was poor. And things got tough. You, you dairy farmers think you have it tough now? Well, you didn't have anything yet compared to what, what they went through. I know it's tough. It's hard. But a lot of men couldn't even find work. And they became road walkers. They had some derogatory terms for them. Some people called them hoboes, and some called them bums, and some called them trants. But they were men who walked. And so oftentimes they would get on the railroad and jump on a car and travel from town to town, try to find something to eat. My great-grandfather lived by the railroad track, and he entertained a lot of those men and uh, a lot of the people in the church that lived by the railroad entertained them and they thought they would not turn them away because the Bible says that some people have entertained angels unawares and maybe this is an angel. But those men knew the houses where they could get bread and where they couldn't. And that they traveled the train. If this was a house, there's a tree by the railroad track, they put a notch on that tree. And when the next man came along and saw that tree had that notch, they know where they can get some bread. And so it's not that you need to be a theologian, but a few things we need to know. You notice, I think we need to, first of all, have a learner's attitude. You notice in verse 6 of chapter 1, it's a learner's attitude. Having, you said you became followers of and have received the word he uses the word received in verse 6 in chapter 2, verse 13. He uses the word received again, verse 13, that you re- when you received the word of God, which you heard you received it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Jesus said, learn of me. As, you know, one of the things that we need to have is a learner's attitude. And I can impress upon that as we meet people. You can be thankful for what you know, but don't walk around with your nose up in the air as if you know it all and you're going to teach people something. <laughs> We need to be humble. We need to be learners. Always learning. Taking a learner's attitude. We've had open doors a number of times to home Bible studies. And I'll say this later. Our most effective tool in our community has not been revival meetings. Our most effective tool has been home Bible studies. And oftentimes, the way the door got open, we talk about, people will talk about their problems, whatever it is. And to say something like this, you know. I'm sure the Lord has answers to your problems. Would you be interested in sitting together and see what we can learn from the Word of God? Taking a learner's attitude that has opened a lot of doors. And here, they, they received the Word. They took it in and become a part of it. We need to understand something about faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is essential in helping people. If people 
You know, you can ask people, uh, do, you, do you believe in God? That's not an intrusive question. And if they say yes, then you can go to the next step. You see, if people believe that there's a God, or if they believe that the Bible is the word of God, you've got a foundation in which to start. Now, not everybody's there. But find out where they are. And, and they're going to ask questions. You know, uh, I've said this already for young married couples, young dads especially. There's nothing that makes a young husband grow up faster than having children of your own. <laughs> and there's nothing that makes you grow up a Christian, makes you grow in your Christian life more than sharing your faith with somebody else. And when people ask questions, you don't have to, you, it's okay to say, I don't know. But I'll find out. And you put them on your same level, see? And, and you learn. And, and so they're going to ask about faith. What does it mean to believe? You know, how, how do you know there's a God? See, simple questions they're going to ask. I know something about faith. Know what it means to commit your life to the Lord. Have a personal testimony. I noticed in Luke... That man that Jesus cast the demons out of, uh, this man was naked and possessed with demons, and Jesus cast them out. And how would, how would your church handle somebody like that? Would you say, no, I, I really think you ought to go to a deeper life or uh, what's, oh, we have all these different places. Six months, you're going to need some training. I mean, your background... You're going to need some help. Huh? <laughs> Jesus said, you go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord have done for you. You thought you ought to stay with Jesus for at least a while. But because he had a personal testimony. So a disciple is a learner. A disciple is also a cross bearer. There are no crown wearers that weren't first cross bearers. Another thing that's important, I think, as we think about the person, and that is that we need to learn the faith, but we also need to live the faith. Notice, in, and that involves, as we think about a person that's passionate, a person that's, that lives the faith. Now, perhaps that's the, one of the most important things as we think about a passion for mission is the kind of life we live. And that involves, first of all, I'd like to suggest it involves caring. To really care. Notice verse 7 of chapter 2. That we were gentle among you even as a nurse. We were affectionate desirous of you. We were willing to have imparted unto you. Not the gospel only but our own souls. Because you were dear to us. You remember brethren our travail. Our labor. We labored night and day. You, you see this passage just pulsating with care. Paul says we cared about you. We cared about you. You've heard it said. People don't care how much you know. They just want to know how much you care. And that's kind of a trite statement, but it is true. See, people know whether we care. I think we ought to examine our own hearts. I had to examine mine. I'm still examining it. Do I, do I, have, do I have a deep burden for soul? You know what a burden is? A burden is something that you get up in the morning, you carry it all day long. I've got some souls that I'm burdened for. And every day I pick up that burden and I carry it all day long. I lay it down when I go to bed and I get up in the morning, it's there again. 
souls that are close to you, if you have ones that are dear to you and you know they're not right with God, you have that burden. Do I, do I have a burden? Do I really care? Do I think about every person I meet? Think about it. Think about every person you meet as a person that has a soul. And that soul is going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell. And that's forever and ever. Every person you meet. Think about that. We have, I have a deep gratitude for all the effort, all the prayers, all the burden, all the finances that are put into our missions. We're glad for that. But I do have a burden for our churches, our conservative churches, that perhaps we're losing our passion. Do we have more passion for making money than we do for the lost? Do we have more passion for vacations and pleasure than we do for the lost? Do I care about the lost souls as much as I would for financial loss? I'd just like to give a little history from my perspective. Again, this is a grid I look through. Yours might be entirely different. <clears throat> I'm a 37 model, and so from the mid-50s 50s up, I can remember. But what happened earlier, I have to read about. I'm a child of the, of the Depression. And what I can gather, at least in our area, and maybe in Lancaster, up to 1900, I'm gonna, I like to think about a period of time, from 1900 to about 1935, 1935 to 1960, and then from 1960 till today. Think about those periods of time. About the turn of the century, beginning of the 1900s, the Mennonite church was wealthy. A lot of big brick churches were built in Lancaster County and were built with tobacco money. It's common knowledge that a number of Mennonite pulpits had spit tunes in the pulpit, the Mennonite church. Would you like your preacher spitting tobacco while he's preaching? Would you like that? Would you consider that very spiritual? Clarence Fretz told me as a boy, he was born just about a little before 1900. He said as a boy, he can remember sitting on his mother's lap and playing with her wedding band. He said the church had little pigeonholes somewhere in the ante room where the ladies put their coverings in. When they came to church, they got the covering out and put it on. When church was over, they put the covering back in the box till next week. How widespread that was, I don't know. But that's why he told me Frank Gunya Church was like. Some people went to church every two weeks. Some went every four weeks. But that began to change. 1900 and the years followed, you have men that had a burden, had a passion for the church. Men like George R. Brunk I, A.D. Wanger, John Kaufman, went around through the churches and began preaching Bible doctrine. I can remember my parents taking me to Lancaster County and sit all day in church, Bible doctrine in the morning, Bible doctrine in the afternoon, Bible doctrine in the evening. Daniel Kaufman wrote his book in 1929, Doctrines of the Bible, which has been a torch. Many people have been blessed by Daniel Kaufman's book. And as a result of Bible doctrine being teached, began to, people began to get conviction. 
there began to be a passion, a love for God, a love for the Word of God. And that brought around practices to apply the Word of God and nonconformity and nonresistance and love for God and love for your neighbor and love for the lost. Three things happened out of that. There was an increase in the application of nonconformity. There was an increase in concern about application of non-resistance. World War I, a number of Mennonite people, boys went to, went to the army. World War II, that changed a lot. And there was a passion for the lost. In our community, we live in Adams County. York and Adams County was the district of the Lancaster Conference. Just give a little history. There were about 12 churches, 12 Mennonite churches. Half of them were closed when we were young people. But there was a missionary movement that began. And I understand I get, I'm indebted to Keith Crowder and some information he got from Mennonite Encyclopedia I'd like to share with you. And it says here that the Mennonite Church Rural Missions Program of the Virginia Mennonites in the Shenandoah Valley began with an outreach in West Virginia as early as the Civil War. But it developed vigorously after 1900. By 1957, there were a total of 21 congregation preaching points and 51 or congregations organized with 553 members. I read about Ryan Benner, 1915, went back to those West Virginia hills and walked for 25 miles from preaching point to preaching point. You talk about passion. What's happened to our passion? Indiana and Michigan Conference by 1958 had 20 mission stations, 10 in the Upper Peninsula. We have a daughter up there in one of those with 500 members. Lancaster and Franconia. Mission Board had over 200 outposts. I couldn't imagine it's that many, but that's what he says here, with 3,000 members. I spent my 1W days in the Baltimore, Washington area. And I can remember when there was only two churches in the Baltimore, Washington district during that movement there. About eight or ten churches opened up through the center part of Pennsylvania, up to New York. The Mennonite church all over had a passion for missions. But something seemed to happen. 1960, there's been a deterioration in the conferences. and Some of you know about that. Some of you are too young to know about that. And there was a burden about what was happening in the church. 1968, Lancaster Conference made a new discipline. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. 1969, the Eastern Church formed and pulled out the Lancaster Conference. 1972, Southeastern Conference formed. Goes to that Virginia Conference. And I thought about it coming down the road. Most of the men that bore the burden for that to happen are not here anymore. You are entered into their labors. What were your labors? The people that follow you. Where you have a passion and a burden. But I think something happened to our mission. I want to be kind. I want to be forthright. I want to be open. But my impressions crossed our conservative circles, whether it's here or the west or east or north, is that we saw what happened to the conferences. And we don't want to go that way. And we, our focus was 
maintenance. Our focus is to prevent. And that's important, you see. But we put our focus on maintaining our standards, which is extremely important, and lost our vision for the lost. I'm afraid largely. <coughs> Along with that, we are experiencing in this time. I told you I'm a child of depression. After World War II, things began to get better, and we got prosperous and prosperous, and we live in a very prosperous time. And you can't help when you were born. You can't help you're born in a prosperous time. But because of that, you know, God's people can never stand prosperity. Israel couldn't do it. God, you know, God's, God's between a rock and a hard place. He wants to bless his people, but he knows when he blesses them, we're going to turn away and go cold. And you have this cycle. God blesses his people, and they grow cold. They lose their passion for him. They turn to the things of the world, and God takes them into captivity, and they call upon God, and they repent, and they come back to God. And that cycle takes about 200 years. See, and where are we in that cycle? See, we live in a very prosperous time. But is our prosperity turning to hedonism, where we live for pleasure, the things that we like to enjoy, instead of for the sake of the kingdom? Our time, our talents. What dominates our passion? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Is it money? Is it farms? Is it trucks? Is it hunting? Is it investments? You know, we look at the world and we say, this is worldly. And uh, I don't know, see, where do, you, where do you draw the line on pleasure? The Bible said that the person that lives in pleasure is dead while they live. I mean, I understand that to say that if you live for pleasure, see, there's a the difference between enjoying some things and living for pleasure. We live in a, a world that works hard to spend it on a weekend. That's their life, see. I was in a nice, conservative Mennonite home recently. And uh, on this wall here was a nice 12-point buck mount. On this wall over here was a 10-point. Over here was a bear mount, full head mount. Over here was another bear with a full rug. And here in the corner sat a full-mounted turkey. Um, this is a nice conservative home. What do you think our conversation was about? Now, you know, he was passionate. See. And, until we got done talking about hunting and wanted to talk about some things that were important, it was time to go home. See, what happened? What happened to Bible verses on our walls and mottos? What happened to our decor? Now, I'm just saying this thing comes in upon us. What influences our thinking? How are our values different from our ungodly neighbors? You see, we, we say, well, no, we, we don't do this. Uh, I don't know. Should I ask God? Any of you have television? I won't ask God. Any of you watch a Super Bowl? Oh, no, we don't do that. We don't even listen to it, right? No, no. But, but you see, we have our legitimate pleasure and so what's accepted with the group it's okay and we're almost at the place where as long as you sin like I sin we'll get along but don't you sin different than I sin or I'm going to call you a sinner 
See. And how much of this pleasure-driven world hath come in upon us and our passion is for money and for the things that, the toys, how much of it? You know, I talked about what, do you remember what I said about cannot means? Do you remember that? You know, Jesus used that word a number of times. You know, he said, you cannot love money and love God. You know that? Is that what he said? Is that what he meant? Mm-hmm. You see, let me ask the question. I need to ask myself this question. Do I live to make money or do I make money to live? See, there's the difference. And some of these other things, nothing may be wrong with it. But do I live to hunt or do I hunt to live? Do I eat to live or do I live to eat? See, Apostle Paul talked about, Peter talked about, they, people wonder why we don't run to the same excess of, and one of the words is banquetings. What's that? You know what that is. I'm saying the culture, the things that influence. You see, all these things influence our thinking. And from our thinking, we establish values. And we live out of our values. And I trust that our values. See, we're losing our values for eternal things. And our values are more about natural things. Do we really care? What are lavish lifestyles while our neighbors are dying and going to hell? It's important how we live. You notice in verse 10, the character. The life of character raises questions. First 10 says, you are witnesses in God, how holy and justly and unblamably we behaved ourselves among you. It's important how we live in our community. If we're going to be successful in this matter of sharing the gospel, it's extremely important how we live. My father used to say, if you want to know how a Christian should live, ask an unchristian. Your neighbors are watching you. Our neighbors watch us to see how we live. It raises questions. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, You know what manner of man we were. It has to do with character. You know what kind of person you are. If we're going to be effective in our communities and our churches, I just want to share a burden. I hear this a number of places. I <clears throat> get to talk to... I, I do a little bit of work for an organization called Anabaptist Financial and been exposed to businessmen that were not not my lifestyle. And here's what they tell me. That some of the hardest people to do business with are conservative Mennonites. That's a tragedy. That is a tragedy. I saw a sign at Business Place recently that says, we enjoy all our customers, some when they come and some when they leave. And if you're the kind of man that's that kind of a penny pincher and willing and yielding for the last dollar, you are a hindrance to the gospel of Christ in the community. That should not once be named among us. I've noticed two things. If you've got men who are known to be hard bargain drivers, hard to deal with, 
always looking for the last penny, and you've got young people who are just interested in crowding around and Cummins diesel pickup with all the noise they can make and the smokers and all that, if that's what they live for, if that's their passion, you might as well hang up. Mission work in the community. Character matters. Character matters. Godly character helps ask questions. I told this story one or other place at least. Some of you ladies, you know, you get questioned about why you wear the head covering. You ever get questioned about that? Yeah. I don't know what you tell them. Hilda got questioned some time ago. She was shopping somewhere and got in the parking lot, and a man came up to her and said, what's that thing you have in your head? Well, she said, that's, that's the covering. So what's that about? Well, she said, I'm a Christian. And the Bible teaches that Christian women should have their head covered, and uh, it, it's a symbol that I'm submissive to God, and I, I give my life to God, and I'm submissive to my husband. He said, do you like that? She said, I love it. And she said, he did a 180-degree tail. <laughs> he was gone. Say, but a life, a life of discipleship raises questions. Don't be ashamed of application of Bible principles. It's an opportunity for testimony for people to ask questions. And if you don't know the answer to why, you need to find out why. Ask somebody. I'm sure your preacher's at least can answer those questions, and I hope your fathers and mothers can too. It involves character. It involves caring. It involves commitment. The last focus that I want you to think about here is the object. Being passionate involves being connected. First Thessalonians 2, 7, and 8. Notice what he said. I want you to notice this word here. We were gentle among you. I want you to notice that. That calls for connection. Even as the nurse cherishes their children, be connected. No till farmers are concerned about seed to soil contact. Okay? You want the seed to connect to the soil. Be connected. Now, I'm glad for all kinds of efforts that are being made, but let me give you an illustration. Here's a young man, and he is looking at a young lady, and he just has his eye on her, and he's beginning to develop something that he'd like to get a closer relationship. And so he watches this lady, and he sees that she travels a certain road almost every day. So he rents the billboard. And he said, hello, Mary. Uh, I would have some interest in a friendship. Uh, he puts a telephone number. Call me. You think he's going to be very successful? We need to connect with people. Connect. It's important that we connect. Glad for every effort, but it takes a personal effort. Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? He wanted to make a connection. Oh, it's good to have billboard evangelism. It's nice to pass out tracts. But you've got to connect. I remember we were passing out tracts one time, and my younger son was with me, and we were going down this road. Maybe it was Bible school invitations. 
and he was just a little fellow, and we were walking up the door, and sometimes we'd knock on the door. If he didn't answer, we'd just put the track there or the invitation. And he said, Dad, uh, next place I'd like to go myself. I said, okay, good. So I stood out in the street and watched him. He went up the walk and went over the porch, got up, and he didn't knock on the door. He just stuck the track there and took a beeline right back to the street real quick. See, he didn't want to get connected. <laughs> but have a desire to connect with people, connect with them, relate to them. Take time to do that. Take a personal interest. Jesus had, took a personal interest in the woman at the well. second thing I noticed that passion requires or results in, in sacrificial living. Look for opportunities to, for, for sacrificial living. We have a lady that moved into our, a couple moved into our community several years ago now, four or five, older couple. He wasn't able to work anymore. And uh, my wife made contact with her and started visiting her. And one day she called my wife and said, uh, Hilda, she said, uh, we got a problem," said. Uh, uh, "Our sewers backed up, commodes don't flush. It's backing up in the basement." She said, "We've got a mess." And Hilda said, uh, "Oh, I think Rich will fix it." <laughs> so I take my backhoe and I go up there and dig. You know, it's one thing to put in a sewer line, but another thing to work on one after it's all plugged up. And I'm down there working this thing, and I wonder what does this have to do with personal evangelism. <laughs> Say, what does this have to do with mission work? But by four months later, that lady accepted the Lord. You see, they aren't used to people sacrificing their time and their income to do things for them. We live in such a selfish world. People are out for themselves. And when you get an opportunity to walk through the door to help people, to bless people, look for an opportunity to bless people. Don't look to be blessed. Look for an opportunity to bless people. You know, as you talk about going into your world, I'd like to think this evening, I said, now I'm getting close, you know, every church and mission church, every family and mission family, every person and missionary, I'd like for every person here just to think right now, in the next week, how many people are you going to meet? You think of this crowd. How many people do you think this crowd would meet in the next week? I have no idea. Some of you... You know, may meet a few, but think about every person that you meet as an opportunity. Now, I'm not, I'm not into this matter of buttonhole evangelism. That everybody you meet, you need to ask them if they're Christian. Because I believe that we pray and God will open hearts. You know, when Paul went to Philippi, it made an interesting statement there about Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. I believe in mission work is more not knocking on doors and telling people about Jesus as it is to be open to the people that God brings into your life. And if you, let me ask, you know, do you have a burden for the lost? If you don't, will you ask him for one? Would you pray for a burden? You think God will answer that prayer? Do you think that's necessary when you pray, God, give me a burden for the lost that you would need to say, if that's your will? You think that's God's will, that each of us have a burden for the lost? Do you think he'll answer that prayer? I encourage us to pray 
Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Pray specifically. Have some person, unsaved person, on your prayer list every day. Maybe for a week. Maybe for two weeks. The same person. Pray earnestly. Have your family pray together. Family devotions. Involve your children in praying for somebody. Somebody that you're concerned about. And you'll be surprised that God will bring that person into your life. You'll be surprised the opportunities will happen. Be alert for opportunities to interject the, the Bible, the Word of God. We were able to lead a couple to the Lord because they had a marriage problem. I saw her one day at my brother's place and she was about to divorce and she was mad at her husband and I just talked to her a little bit and I said, well, uh, I, I said, Kathy, I said, you know, I, I just want you to know that God cares about your marriage. And uh, I said, God has answers to your marriage. I said, would you be interested and in see if we can just sit down and look at the Word of God, look at the Bible and see what we could find? And she said, yeah. And we started meeting with them once a week. And after about nine months, about four months, she accepted the Lord. About nine months, he did. But you see, the Word of God, if you can get people to read the Bible, I say, personal Bible studies. We never took two families at once, one family at a time. For some number of years, we had two nights a week with personal Bible studies, sometimes three nights a week. Hilda would take care of the children, and I'd sit down with them. And if you can get people to read the Bible, the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper. You see, in conversion, just like in natural reproduction, you've got two active agents. You've got a father and a mother. In, in spiritual reproduction, you've got two agents. You've got the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And those two agents bring about life. And if you can get people to read the Bible, the Holy Spirit begins to work in that life. It begins to produce life. Peter said, being born again by the Word of God. It's a life-giving Word. It's not you trying to convince somebody else of truth. If you can get somebody to read the truth, the Holy Spirit begins to work in that life. And when they do that, they begin to ask questions and opportunities. We used a little Bible study book had 13 lessons. But sometimes it took us two years to get through the book because they had questions when they become. Some nights we never got to the book. We answer their questions. You got to scratch where it itches. See, when they have questions, scratch where it itches. That's when they're learning. But opportunities, pray for opportunities. Oh, just multitude. A new baby's born. And you go to visit and say, Oh, what a, what a blessing. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, only God could make something like that. You are so blessed. And, you know, that little baby has a soul that's going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell. And they'll say, really? See? Or when people have illnesses or marriage problems. Just so many opportunities in life just to begin to inject and you see, ask a few questions, and oftentimes one question can lead to the next. But if you can lead them to the Word of God, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, all, all we are is God's water boys. That's all. We just carry the water. That's all we are. Water boys and water girls. The Word of God is what does the work of the Spirit of God. I'd just like to encourage you.
to use the opportunities. I'm going to close. The last, in chapter 1, verse 19, he asked the question, What is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? He said, Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? I don't know what the judgment's going to be like, what we'll see, what we'll know about other people being judged, other people knowing about our judgment. But let me suggest a possible scenario. Maybe we'll be witnesses. And here comes someone to the judgment of Christ. And Jesus said, You've been faithful. Enter into the joy of my Lord. And oh, what a blessing that was going to be. And that person looks at you and says, I just want to thank you for sharing the gospel with me. I just want to thank you for the example that you lived. We had a retired school teacher that taught school all of his life. And he was a walker. He would walk from his house to school a number of miles. And he became a Christian after he retired. And I don't know what all happened, but he walked by uh, a maiden lady's house every day. And I don't know what she did or if she said or whatever, but he said that her life spoke to him over the years. You never know what your life influences, see? Never know. But if they say, thank you for your influence, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. Or what if there's someone there who says, God says, depart, I never knew you. But they knew you. And as they're going into the abyss, they say, why didn't you tell me? If you knew this, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Which will it be? Oh, may God help us to have our focus on the things that are eternal. Deliver us from idolatry. Deliver us from the culture of our time of living for self. Putting our passion on the things that are going to count. That when life is over. And I'm not here. I, I, I think it's a church. You know we're in this together. It's not that. I, I don't go for this idea that. I'm going to have so many stars in my crown. Because of people I want the Lord know. I don't even think about that. You know. It's being faithful. Where you are. We're. In this together. It's not one, it's not a one-man show. We're all in this together. Everyone living your life consistently in the brotherhood. Demonstrating love to people. Demonstrating that you love each other. That you can get along. And the kind of a witness that the group has in the community. What a, what a blessing that will be. If we are faithful and have that passion to lay all on the altar. And give ourselves holy. That don't mean we don't work. That don't mean we don't buy things. That don't mean we don't enjoy life. But it says there's a different reason why we do what we do. Thank you.